You're listening to Talking Taiwan with your host, Felicia Lin. My guests on today's episode of Talking Taiwan are Alyssa Russell and Elizabeth Williams. I've invited them onto Talking Taiwan to share about their experiences living in Taiwan, the racism that they've experienced as black women in Taiwan and the U.S., and their perspectives on Black Lives Matter. Welcome to the podcast, ladies. Thank you for having us. Yes, thank you. Wonderful. So let's start with um, letting my uh, listeners know a little bit about yourselves. Could you tell me where you're from? Like, where did you grow up and where you consider home? Uh, okay, I'll go first. <laughs> um, my name is Liz Williams. I'm originally from Chicago. I'm currently living in L.A., but I have lived in a number of different places. So when you ask me about where I consider home, it's kind of a complicated question. Um, I have been in LA now for about 15 years, but prior to that, I lived in Taiwan for a year and a half. I also lived in Beijing for a half a year, and I lived in Paris for six years. So I was an expat for quite a bit, but LA is home now, but I'm glad I grew up in Chicago, and Taiwan will always have a piece of my heart, so. <laughs> Wonderful. Okay, Alyssa? Yeah, my name is Alyssa, and I am from Mississippi. Um, that is where I was born, and then I spent most of my academic years uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. That's where I went to college, and from there, I moved to Taiwan. But presently, I'm back living in Atlanta for the short term, but I have big plans by the end of 2020 to relocate somewhere, not on this coast, maybe not in this country. Um I don't know that I consider any place really home. I always move. I've moved back and forth from Atlanta at least five times. Um, but some, it's very comfortable. So, you know, uh, but yeah, I feel like I can make home, you know, wherever I land. So um, in the big scheme of things, if I can make Taiwan home and, you know, get every single thing, I, you know, there, I, I would say, I, I mean, I had, it was probably the best part of my life was living there. So or somewhere in Southeast Asia. Right. Well, and so that leads me to the next question. Since you already touched upon that, can you talk about what brought you to Taiwan and when did you move there? How long you lived there? Um, so what year did I graduate from high school, uh, college? 2002, I believe. I moved to Taiwan uh, after graduating from Spelman College. And um, I have a concentration in Japanese studies. So my Japanese professor she was, her husband was actually Taiwanese and he used to always come to our class and he's like, you know, there's great opportunities to teach in Taiwan. And he used to tell us, you know, you should try to teach in Taiwan. And um, I applied to teach in a few different countries and didn't get them. And then her husband was like, hey, <laughs> if you still need an option, there's Taiwan. So that is actually how I ended up there. It was not my first choice, but it ended up being, you know, the best choice. Great. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. Um, Liz, I'd like to pose the same question to you. Like, uh, what brought you to Taiwan? So I um, learned about Taiwan through studying Chinese in college. My roommate in college was Taiwanese American. Um, and I would go home with her on weekends and her mom would cook for us. And I would, you know, watch them interacting with each other and speaking in Chinese and her grandmother would be watching soap operas in Chinese. And I was so intrigued by the culture that I started to learn. I started taking Chinese classes and I took a couple of years of Chinese classes and all of my teachers were Taiwanese. Um, and then I happened on this movie called Feral My Concubine and fell in love with 
Chinese opera. And after I graduated from college, I got an independent study fellowship to travel and study for a year. And I built a project around opera because I really just wanted to see China. Um, and I also wanted to go back to France where I'd studied abroad. And so I crafted the project to spend four months or five months in Beijing and then spend a month in Taipei just to kind of have a contrast, um, a cultural contrast. And after having spent four months in Beijing, where it was, you know, this was Beijing in 1997, so very different from Beijing today. And it was tough. And I got to Taiwan, it just felt so, it was like a different world. It was warm, the people were warm. I felt so much more at home there, even though I still got stares like I did in Beijing, but it was, it just felt so much more welcoming than Beijing did that I decided years later that I wanted to go back and study Chinese in Taiwan. So that's how I crafted this other idea to go to Taiwan to study Chinese. So I went back, went back for a year to do that. Oh, wonderful. Thanks for sharing that. Could you ladies, um, whoever wants to chime in first, tell me a little bit about any racism that you experienced while in Taiwan and how did you deal with it? Um, I'll start. I was I wasn't there nearly as long as Alyssa was, so I'm sure that she has a lot more stories than I do. Yeah. Um, my ex- it's funny. I so I lived abroad for about eight years in total, and I find that racism, like as a Black American living abroad, you have to be very careful about what you consider to be racism because we do, as Black Americans, still have a kind of privilege of being American when we're abroad too. So. You know, I had people say things to me that offended me as a black person. Um, so, for example, when I went to Taiwan the, the, the second time, I was on a TV show and we're talking about relationships, you know, in different countries and how people build relationships. And I remember the host asked me, and I, and I was like the representative for America. There was, a, there was a Japanese woman, an Indonesian woman, all these women from different places. And she said, um, you know, how, as, a, as a woman from America, what happens in relationships? How do you let a guy know that you like them? And I said, well, you know, I'm pretty direct. I usually just go and talk to him. And this, the Taiwanese representative said, oh, I know what you say. You just say, you know, your place or mine. And I remember being floored. But I think that that kind of attitude is something that was reflective of how people think American women in general are easy when they go abroad, I think. But I also had experiences like, you know, um, <laughs> I was walking, actually Alyssa was with me. We were walking home from a club and there were, Alyssa and I were only two black, pe- black friends in our group and we had a lot of white guy friends and friends from other countries and we had a super international group of friends. And we're walking down the street it was late at night we're coming from a club and this group of Taiwanese people saw me and one of them was drunk and he pointed and he started saying olang 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 so I didn't know any Taiwanese words at that time for some reason maybe because I had been drinking I thought that he was speaking Spanish so I said hola como estas then his friends jumped around and they were saying, oh, you know, he didn't mean anything by it. They realized I didn't understand what he was saying. Then I was like, oh, he's referring to me as a black person. And he started, and he was laughing when he said, olang, olang. So then it became a little bit tense. Um, so yeah, that was my kind of most tense <laughs> um, story with, with racism. But even then, like I still, 
never felt like it came from a place of hatred, more of curiosity or ignorance, anything that I heard that was negative. I mean, I definitely knew that black teachers had a hard time in Taiwan because they, you know, Taiwanese families prefer to have white teachers, even if the teachers are not native English speakers sometimes. Um, but yeah, my, I, I tried to use any experience I had to educate people if they were directly talking to me. Um, but I never took it personally, like they hate me because I'm black, which is something that I, that happens here in America. Right. Thank you for sharing that. Alyssa, I know you have a lot to say on this. <laughs> oh, um, I, I would definitely have to uh, mimic Liz and saying yeah, that it is necessary to define what is racism in Taiwan, because I think it, it definitely is very different from when we say someone is being racist in the U.S. Some of the statements, comments, actions that happen to me in Taiwan, in the U.S., they will be racist. In Taiwan, someone was simply ignorant of the fact, and they did, culturally, they didn't understand that walking up to me and pulling my hair, going, oh my God, Jinda, like really? Like, is this real hair? That this, I need a tofa, Jinda, like it, that them saying, is your hair real? And actually not even under, knowing that I understood what they were saying, that this was simply a curiosity versus if a non-black person in the U.S. walk up to me and grab my hair, we have a whole situation to deal with because they understand that that's not okay and they're doing it out of, to be malicious. Um, and even if it's not malicious, if it's a coworker, which happens in the workplace if you change your hair as a black woman oh oh my gosh you have braids now like what is you know yeah i'm sorry google it but this we're not going to have this conversation about why was my hair short yesterday and why is it long today so um i i definitely had a variety of experiences some of them where i was aware that yeah it was malice but largely i think it was just out of curiosity and ignorance which doesn't mean that it wasn't hurtful at the time or that I responded in an appropriate manner because lots of, you know, depending on the day and how long I waited on the martyr or how long I've been waiting on the bus or me being, you know, just upset about, I couldn't communicate something correctly. I may not have had the patience to explain to someone, uh, you know, when they're pointing and, you know, you're sitting in a coffee shop and I'm trying to study and there's an entire family sitting across from me laughing and pointing. And all I hear is, hey, hey, done. hey, you know, black this and black that like. And the whole time I'm there, the entire conversation is about me. Or I realize, as you know, I did not study Mandarin formally, so I picked it up along the way. And just as I began to understand more, realizing that if I went to Sogo, or any department store, literally from the moment I approached the door, every conversation was about me. You know, hearing Hayron everywhere. I'm like, I did not know all these people were talking about me all the time. So in my mind, I was, you know, my own celebrity. I have thick enough skin to this. And, 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 and I decided to kind of, to, um, change the situation and make it a positive encounter because when I realized someone was going, oh, yo, hey, you know, I say hello, I would wave, you know, I would introduce myself. And of course, people were taken aback for a moment. And then they were like, oh, hello, hello, hello. You know, so people tended to be quite polite, especially once you acknowledge. And then they are apologetic because they realize, 
oh, their behavior pointing or laughing at you or even giving you that amount of attention is to make you lose face as a foreigner. And it makes them lose face when you automatically just respond to them, especially in a positive light. So um, probably my worst experience in terms of that it was malicious. I was working at a, you know, I worked as a teacher there uh, at least 50% of the t my work there was teaching and I was working at a kindergarten. It was a Saturday class for young learners. And the, so the parents were not people that we knew. It was just a one-off. You could pay and come have a story, interactive storytelling for children aged two to five. As the kids are leaving, I'm standing at the top of the stairs and a father and a child, the father says to the child in Mandarin, what does your teacher look like? She looks like a zoo animal, right? So my boss, uh, Tyronese, well, she's standing by the door and she actually went to Tulane in Louisiana, you know, very Americanized, but she's Taiwanese. So as soon as she heard him say that, she looks up the stairs at me and I just stood there and I just, because to me, this is normal, but she was so upset about it. And he's like, and the child goes, oh, Elisa, I'm so hot. Like, you know, no, I like the teachers. This child is three. So the father continues to kind of prod the child, like, hey, doesn't she look like a zoo animal? Don't you remember the gorilla? And like the father's making gestures. And he's saying this in Mandarin, but I understood enough, especially when he's making it. So my uh, employer, I mean, she let this man have it, gave them back their money, uh, told him he needed to apologize, which he did. And she, he was like, and she can understand you. And that is so inappropriate. And she like really came to my defense in the situation. Now for me, I just thought, mm, you know, cause I've heard all types of things. Uh, but you know, he obviously lost face, which was so, cause all the other parents were there when she gave him back his money and told him he was never could come back to her school. And, you know, so and thinking back, I'm like, yeah, that was pretty harsh, but uh, that was probably one of the most, mostly because there were so many people who witnessed it. And the other parents who were standing there while he was saying these things didn't say anything. But the owner of the, of the school was irate about it. And, you know, the next class, she made an entire announcement about the diversity of her school. And, you know, and she's quite experienced in, you know, cultural bias and cultural understanding because she had gone to school in Louisiana, which is largely a mostly black state, you know. And, uh, yeah, so she was very and she was all about inclusivity. So it was, a, it was a great experience on hold because someone stood there and she made, I didn't have to say anything. I didn't have to be upset because she managed it and she managed it really well. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, I love like how both of you dealt with this and your attitude, like how you took the time to actually distinguish the intent, which really makes a huge difference. And I think that um, actually could be something that hopefully other people of color could take note of, like to understand the intent of why people are doing the things that they do. That would help you a lot. And then how you guys also diffuse things with the humor and like try to turn things around. Um, that's to your credit. I acknowledge you for that. And then it's also really interesting, like yeah, parents. I love the example that Alyssa gave with the kid at the school, the three-year-old kid. Like kids, they don't see that you're black or that you're whatever and but the parent was trying to reinforce these stereotypes or to say things so I think it's really important the role of parents too um, could you comment a little bit about how the racism that you experienced in Taiwan was different from what you experienced in the U.S.? Um, well for me I think like in the U.S. I fully understand that when people make comments about skin color hair uh, or, you know, stigma 
angry black woman that it is, uh, you know, malicious. These are stereotypes. These are um, quite common in American culture. Black women don't, you know, black women don't move up as quickly or at all in business, even though they do exceptional job to other women, usually white women or women of other races, just because they are black women. And there are all these perceptions and um, misconceptions, uh, especially about professional black women. (laughs) So uh, that did not happen in Taiwan. Uh, In Taiwan, I actually, after what, two years, I actually began working very uh, independently. I had a lot of one-to-one students that were under the age of 10, like the parents dropped them off at my home. We walked around the community and they had a really, not just an English learning experience, but a culture experience. Uh, There's one student um, who, he actually just graduated from Taipei American School. We are still in contact. I've known him since he was three years old. He is like my son and his mother, was like, no, people would see us together and go, I mean, you, you let your son go with, um, is, is she your cleaning lady? Is she, and, and this, Anthony would say, ah, Elisa, also, what are I Like, I'm his auntie. And he would always, this little kid would always, uh, always tell people that I was his auntie. And it was around uh, Taipei. I, I think a lot of shops, a lot of places knew us because they're like, here comes that black foreigner and this little Taiwanese boy. And they really didn't understand, but they just knew he was always smiling and laughing. But um, people's inquisitiveness in Taiwan is very different from what happens here in the U.S. I have two other kids here in the U.S. and I am seeing with them, one of them goes to Georgia Tech, Georgia Tech and one goes to UGA. And when I'm with them, we, they come to town, we go and have brunch. Even now, in 2020, sometimes the response is, just to say it's highly inappropriate. And they, the, the, the young man, he's now 20, he deals with it in stride. He's been in the U.S. for two years, you know, uh, but his, young, his sister, who's in her second year of university here, she doesn't. And she doesn't know how to manage it. Even right before they left for COVID, they were walking to the store and some guy, white guys yelled out the window, go home, coronavirus. And he called and told me about it, you know. But, yeah, it's, it's difficult in the U.S. And it's malicious. And it's really overt. So Bystander yelling, go home, coronavirus, because the kids are Asian? Yeah, yeah, they're both Taiwanese. Okay. One goes to the University of Georgia and one goes to Georgia Tech. Okay, yeah. And I, you know, they, their stuff uses at my house. And if they come in early, they stay with me. So, yeah, we were packing them up to go home right when everything closed down for um, Corona. And they were, yeah, just walking to the store right before their flight. And right. people were... And another part of that said, you know, I'm in Atlanta, Georgia, which is the South, the deep South. So um, people don't, people's views about other cultures and races is highly limited. Uh, The South is not as inclusive as other parts of the U.S. So that plays a major role in how, in in 2020, how our racism, uh, what it looks like on a day-to-day basis. And that it is on a day-to-day basis that our racist attitudes and actions are just prevalent. They're just normal. Right. Yeah, here, okay. here in L.A., it's, it's very different. So it's uh-huh. super diverse. It's a progressive state. So even people who are racist will never say anything to your face, at least not in the same way. Like, you know, there are no Confederate flags flying and things like that like you have in the South. So I haven't experienced 
that kind of like in your face racism so much here. I mean, I've, I've been in a lot of interracial relationships actually. So I've had comments from, you know, from black and white people about that. Um, people who I didn't know <laughs> who made comments on the street. Um, but beyond that, I think in, in progressive areas, racism is more insidious because it's, you know, we can, they can, the system can oppress us. It doesn't have to just be individual one-to-one um, kind of racism and, and oppression. Um, but I would say, yeah, in Taiwan, it was, um, like you were saying before, the intention is, is what was the most important thing. So I had, um, you know, when I, I speak Chinese and I went, and so I went there in a very different context. Um, and so most of the people that I met knew from the beginning that I spoke Chinese and knew that I had, like, <laughs> it's funny because Chinese and Taiwanese people, when they meet a foreigner who speaks Chinese, I think there's this sense that Chinese is so difficult that someone who would put in so much time and effort to learn it, like obviously has some respect for the culture. And I think that goes a long way. Um, so I was able to like have discussions with people about these things in Chinese, which was really helpful. Um, but at the same time, and so, so for example, when I went to Taiwan to um, participate in uh, Chinese and super idol in 2010, you know, again, it's about your definition of racism, right? So there were definitely comments, even from the judges, that were like, oh, you're black, so you must sing like Whitney Houston, or, oh, I had one that said, you know, you should try, basically tell me I should, like, black it up, like, act more black, like, you, we can see that you love Chinese culture, and you want to be this, like, demure lady, but just be more black, you know, whatever that meant for them. So, coming from an American context, it's highly offensive, you know, to group us all in this, if you're black, you should act this way um, kind of category. But at the same time, I also understand that attitudes like that are the direct result of American media. So I can't, I couldn't blame them. I just kind of laughed along with them in those cases, but I knew that it was because of attitudes that they had formed because of what they saw in American shows and American TV and films. Yeah. I have to say that singing thing, there is this crazy misconception that all black people sing, especially black women. I cannot carry a note if you do it on a sheet of paper. It's not going to happen. But in Taiwan, there's a place called Brown Sugar. People would, do you know how many times I got called to the stage and I was like, oh my God, I can't sing. No, 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 it's not a joke. No, 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 I'm not being shy. I can't sing at all. At all all but i anytime we would go to like these live venues that were local venues someone would always say oh in the porn and i'm like me i can't sing i not even a little i can't but they would just um and it was i mean they learned real quickly on the few nights that i had too many drinks and went on that stage <laughs> so there you go myth debunked because i cannot it's gonna be bad but i don't even know the words to that song what is this song again Oh, it might, yeah, I just, <laughs> just couldn't happen. Um, and, and in the U.S., when someone um, associates, oh, you got into this, you know, th- th- there's this racist attitude that if you, if, if a person gets into Yale or Harvard, oh, you got in on athletics, perhaps, not on academics. These types of ideas in the U.S., 
we know that they are highly malicious. You know, they're stereotype based. But I will say, like as Liz said, in Taiwan, no, it's just oh, they've watched Western media and the ideas that you know. How many times was I asked that I know LeBron James when I arrived in Taiwan? LeBron had just signed to the NBA. And he did that big uh, poster. Everyone remembers when he was sitting in the King's chair. It was called King James. And it was this huge mega mega campaign. It was all over Taiwan. All, I mean, all over. And people would, do you know him? No, who? I didn't even know this young man had become an NBA player. And then someone took me to a place called Ximending. And literally, there's this huge black guy on this massive billboard. And it was lit up. And they were like, him. And I'm like, don't know the guy, but let me Google him. Uh, but people would just ask me because I was black that surely I knew this black guy, um, LeBron James. It was that was probably one of my most vivid memories about black culture. I'm like, they're really into yeah, basketball. I think I think Taiwanese, or well, not even just Taiwanese, Asians in general don't realize how many black people are in the United States and that they're you know so hence the idea that like oh if you're black you must know this other black person who lives in this country of 300 million people like i think they really don't realize that there's such a variety of different kinds of black people different looking black people black people who do all kinds of different things and again that's the fault of the american media but that's the kind of stereotypes right. that happen yeah because literally right. they're getting what entertainment and sports and so you're not hearing about the black physicians or scientists or Nobel Peace Prize winners or the police officers or the regular teachers, except for the one who, by some exception, happens to be in Taiwan. I remember a student telling me that. Alyssa, so we understand that you must like have money and you got to come to Taiwan. But are your, are your parents and siblings, you said to your brothers and sisters, are they still slaves in the U.S.? A high school student asked me that. And I said, I'm sorry, what? So we learned about slavery. So I, we were just wondering if your parents were still slaves in the U.S. But we understand, like, you had, like, X amount of money, and therefore I was able to get out and come to Taiwan to be a teacher. But they were, and they were so, at first I thought it was a joke, but the students were so serious and genuine. And I had to do this whole history lesson. I'm like, so, so no, 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 I, I'm not just free. I mean, I'm just free, period. Uh, so I, my family, they're free. <laughs> but yeah, um, but they only know what they know, right? And I saw the history book that they got this information from. And I can't imagine what their instructor, who also was Taiwanese and just didn't have the entire picture of <laughs> civil rights. And yeah, so there are. It was fun. <laughs> there was a lot of education happening all the time. Wow. Well, yeah, it just goes to show it's like it's what they're exposed to, right? It's a limited, like, because there's already not that many, like, uh, black people or people of color in Taiwan. So there's not that much exposure. So, and so then I wanted to get a talk about the Black Lives Matter movement, which has really, you know, become much more of a global movement lately, especially after the murder of George Floyd, unfortunately. And the Black Lives Matter movement can be traced back to February 2012 with the death of Trayvon Martin. That's when the hashtag came into being and was trending and all that. And now eight years later, we have the death of George Floyd and a lot of other incidents that have happened. So the world is really taking notice now. And I was wondering if you could share what your personal reactions or experience of Black Lives Matter when it in the inception in 2012 were, and then we can fast forward and talk about it currently. So, 
the tragic thing about being black and living in this country is that what happened to George Floyd and what happened to Trayvon Martin and Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor, like it happens so often that we've become desensitized to it, honestly, um, as black people. Like we grieve every time, we get angry every time. But, you know, James Baldwin put it so perfectly when he said that to be a black person in America and to have any level of consciousness is to be in a constant state of rage. And so I think that we protect ourselves after each incident. Like we build this armor where we, because if we walked around internalizing what happens to us, we wouldn't be able to function. So when Trayvon Martin was killed and we saw George Zimmerman get off, we were all angry. None of us were surprised. And, but it was great to see this Black Lives Matter movement taking off. I also wasn't surprised that it fizzled out, right? Because that's what happens with movements in this country. And, but what was surprising this time is that, you know, we, because George Floyd is not the first black man we've seen die on camera, right? Um, or being beaten to one inch of his life, right? We had Rodney King 25 years ago and those officers all got off. But I think it just happened at such a pivotal point in time where people were paying attention and were at home and they couldn't go out. And so they kept seeing these images over and over. And, you know, George Floyd happening right after Mont Aubrey and then, you know, Breonna Taylor all happening at the same time. I think that people just, something about this time in history has given them a chance to really reflect and understand that this is not only terrible, but that it's been happening since the beginning of this country. And I also think that, you know, this time in history, you know, Black people are living in all different places. They're more, you know, groups of friends are more integrated. Young people don't see race in the same way as our grandparents did, right? So they don't, they really understand how fundamentally horrible it is to judge someone based on the color of their skin because they have friends from all races. Um, and so I think now people are taking notice because they feel like it's hit them in a different way. Um, and so for me personally, that was the thing that touched me the most about, you know, what's happening now is seeing how people are really, like, you, know, you look at these protests are not just in the big cities anymore. It's not just black people protesting. It's in Idaho and rural Minnesota and all these places where you would never expect to see a Black Lives Matter march in places where no black people even live. Um, so it's, that part has been really comforting to me to see that, like, oh, you know, these are probably, the, this is, it feels like um, when Obama was running for office and when he won, I was so touched to be an American because I knew that he couldn't have won with only black people voting for him. Like so many people from all different races voted for him and because they understood that he was the most qualified candidate and they wanted to see a change. And I feel kind of the same way now. That having been said, again, if you look at history in this country, we have to be very mindful of whether or not this kind of energy is going to be sustained beyond, beyond the election because everybody can see how destructive Trump has been and they want him out. But once he's gone, you know, that's not going to be the end of the issue. So I'm, I'm encouraged, but, but also it's a guarded optimism about what's going to really happen. But it's definitely encouraging to see that people are looking at our issues that we've been screaming about for since the beginning of time, 
um, people like, you know, books of books that we've been reading as black people are sold out in all the bookstores and people are really like taking notice in a way that I've never seen before. So that's the biggest difference from what's happening right now for me. Protests in Berlin and Syria and like it's, it's really interesting. And I think a lot of it has to do with COVID-19, honestly, that people are just home and have more time to pay attention. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, Alyssa, would you like to share your thoughts on how you're experiencing all this? Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree with Liz that, yeah, it happened at the best time possible because honestly, I think even when people have seen it, they don't have the space in their day. You're moving so fast to care. And so because people are all locked up at home, this was something just like some people took on gardening, you know, <laughs> some people got a pet during this. Some A majority of the world said, huh, this really is bad. Let's get behind this and support it. You know, no matter what was their initial, I mean, it could have been they were just bored to death. But once they got gathered more information about it, they got behind it and supported it. Because it. Um, I think the fact that people have made signs and are hitting the streets you know, it speaks volumes about that they truly are supporting it. It's not just like a knee-jerk reaction because everyone else is doing it and they're jumping on board. Um, also, my first response to like seeing so, pe so many people support Black Lives Matter across the world is that I believe that historically the U.S. has always kind of set the precedence in terms of change and that there are lots of disenfranchised groups in every single country in this We have been everywhere. So if you can get behind this movement and effect positive change, then you also have a chance of having the world see your problem, your group of indigenous people, your communities that are also being treated in this manner and that no one's paying attention to. So I also feel that, that that's a strong reason that people are also wanting to support this beyond the fact that it is horrendous and they are appalled. And previously they were unaware or just didn't have the space and time to care about it. So, um, yeah, my reaction is, yay, you know, I, I'm glad it's getting some, uh, a, a lot of attention. But I also am concerned about how long will it last. We are quickly uh, running upon election season here in the U.S. We already have a distraction with a, a new candidate that we're like, say what? Is this what? This is really real? You know, uh, already we have a kind of slowed in the news. We're constantly seeing incidents that are happening. But in terms of the number of rallies, because people do have to get back to the nine to fives, we are at a crossroads of, is the economy going to be open? It's not safe to do so. There are tons of new cases. So the Black Lives Matter and to keep pushing this initiative is now down to number seven in the top 10, right? You know, so moving forward over the next six months throughout the rest of the summer, how much importance will be given to it as people are realizing their bank accounts are empty, their companies closing down, they're being laid off, they don't have their health insurance, and oh, they also have just tested positive for COVID-19 because two weeks ago they were out there supporting this initiative. And they, hey, with a mask, you got a 70% chance of protecting yourself and 30% chance that you're still going to get COVID. So um, I, I am concerned about what does it look like, you know, moving forward and for the long haul, how much work are these supporters willing to do? And obviously when you talk about making long to, uh, change, there's a core group that does the work, but you still have to have the buy-in from the masses to tick a box, to vote, to whenever it's election time, to vote for that initiative on their ballot. So, you know, I, I am cautiously positive that 
yeah, we may be able to continue this going forward and really have some um, legal changes happen within each state uh, and, and at the federal level. Uh, but again, cautiously, uh, what is it? Cautiously, cautiously um, optimistic. Thank you, optimistic. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, I think that's. And my my experience is I'm in Atlanta, Georgia. So you know, um, Ahmad Marbury happened here. I also am a runner, a jogger, and up until the point. When that incident, I was not even aware that it had happened a few months ago. So when it uh, hit the news, I was like, say what? Now, my personal experience is I'm a jogger. I live in a um, kind of higher income area of the city, uh, right outside some like $1.5 to $2 million homes. Uh, and the individuals that live in the homes are all non-black and most of them are highly conservative and their political views etc are demonstrated on their lawns with their flags i jog a certain path all the time i speak most of them don't speak to me they're in their yards with their kids they don't speak this is normal i don't care i jog my and and then this incident happened and i was like oh my god what happens at 7 a.m. with everything that's happening and all this being in the news that one of my, these neighbors that don't think that I should be in this neighborhood, they don't realize I literally live behind. If you look over your back fence, I live right there and they're having a bad morning and they're upset about constantly seeing this news about Black Lives Matter and they decide to take some action, which is what happened with this guy. That someone decides to follow, you know, so it made me rethink my actions. Um, I changed where I jog. Uh, I, yeah. In the short term, I, I don't jog in that area anymore because, yeah, it is my experience that they, they don't speak. Some of them kind of went, look, they double take the kid. They go inside because, you know, there are no black people who own homes in that area. I don't think even if you had the funds, you would even be allowed. Like somehow you would never be approved to purchase a home in that area. Um, and I don't know. In the South, I, the Georgia is a very uh, segregated state. In terms of how, like, all of the higher income blacks majority live in, like, southwest Atlanta. All of the Koreans, Asian people live all the way north. You know, the middle of the city is pretty diverse. You know, there's a LGBT community, and then there's kind of the millennials who are, like, liberal community. But all everything else, north, south, east, and west, you really could just take a map and go, um, over six-figure blacks and then low-income blacks live here and then all of the Spanish speakers live here. This is the rich Spanish speakers. The city is pretty divided like that. And you'll yeah. find the same $2 million home but in your section of the city. And every in, in downtown, you'll find, that's where you'll find the more uh, diversified persons of different, uh, with different income living in the same area but it's only central to downtown city of Atlanta. Yeah, LA is, LA is not as segregated, but Chicago, where I'm from, is segregated. It's, it's similar with, it's highly segregated. And that was intentional, right? That was, there was a policy put in place to keep people out of certain neighborhoods. Um, but I was going to say to Alyssa's point too about this, this current incident is that it felt more personal than any of the other ones that have happened before. I'm not sure. I think, again, it's probably because we're all sitting at home and there's just this energy of kind of feeling trapped and, fe you know, just thinking about things more deeply in general. 
but yeah, when, when the Mont Aubrey thing happened, I immediately thought of Alyssa because she's my best friend and she lives in that area and I know how the South is. But I also thought about my brothers and my, you know, black male friends. And, you know, when George Floyd was killed and they were saying how it was because he was trying to spend a fake $20 bill, I have, you know, American currency circulates. He may not have even done that intentionally. I know me specifically have had instances where I went to the bank to deposit money. I used to teach English and I would get paid a lot of cash. And I went to deposit money and they came back at one point and said, this bill is fake. I had no idea where it came from, no idea how I got it. Like, that's the point of fake money, right? You spend it somewhere where someone doesn't pay attention and it circulates. He could have gotten it from the store that he had been at the week before. And so to think that like something that was so harmless could result in this man's death, I was thinking like that could have been any of us. And it really, you know, for people like me and Alyssa and our friends and people that we associate with, like, We've built our whole lives in a certain way where it's like, you get the education, you travel, you have people from all different races in your circle, and it doesn't matter to you what this person looks like or that person looks like, and you're bold and going out and living your life. And, and to think that like in the, in, the, in the end game, it doesn't even, like that was what I was saying to myself, is in the end, it doesn't even matter. Because if you're running down that street, they don't know that, she lived in Taiwan for nine years and taught English to the Taiwanese legislators. You know, if, so, if I give somebody a $20 bill, they see a black face. They don't know that I lived abroad for eight years and speak four languages and they don't care. That was the thing that I just, I had never had that thought before that like truly, you know, as black people, they tell you, get the education, you know, be, be a better person and that's going to save you. And I realized, uh, you know, this, this, Time has really made me rethink. And I had never, I don't know, I had never thought about it before, which is strange because we know racism exists, but like in some ways we were taught that like, you know, if you, if you do the right thing, because that's the American lie, right? You, you do the right thing and you can have the American dream and be a good person and nothing bad will happen to you. You're protected, right? But it doesn't, it doesn't mean that. I mean, and we've seen instances, Henry Louise Gates, who's a professor at Harvard, was trying to get into his own house and people thought he was breaking into his house. And it really, it's, you know, I think at the end of the day, some people just see us the way that they see us. And it's very hard to live that way. To think that like, no matter what you do, people will always have that view of you. Wow. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, it doesn't get any more real than that. Like, you know, Alyssa talking about how she's in the neighborhood where Ahmaud Aubrey was shot and killed and jogging around there I don't have any words. I don't know what to say about that. And it's, it's shocking. Alyssa, did you ask? Yeah, just a similar neighborhood. It's like, what are you going to do? Yeah. What can we do about this? I mean, um, you know, as more non-Black people have become aware of the struggle in the Black experience and are coming out to support Black Lives Matter and, you know, maybe want to figure out how they can be an ally or something like what do you have to say to people like that or what can we say that's like a little bit more positive about what's happening at this moment in time 
Um, I think I want I want to say something to to kind of pitch Liz because Liz is working on a project right now, and I was reading the project, and one of the things it talks about is not just being an ally but being an accomplice. And I think this is a great space to explain what that means because we're talking about as this whole movement kind of as things slow and we have to find our new normal and people concerned about work. How do you continue to do this work? How do you how do you still be an ally? Is what we're describing, but I think her organization and what they're, the work they're about to start doing about being an accomplice is a better way to help define how do non-blacks continue to participate. So, Liz. Thank you for that. Yes, please, Liz. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, so I'm working on creating an, an anti-racism initiative with the thought that, you know, we need to redefine what it means to be an ally. I think a lot of people right now are feeling like, I went to the march, I'm an ally, or I put up the black square on Instagram, I'm an ally, or I read this book, or I have a black friend, but that's not enough to really effectuate change in the long term. And so one of the things that we're examining with this organization is getting to the root of, of racist attitudes by really having people examine themselves first. Coming from the standpoint that like change with change outside of you has to start from within. And so if you don't understand why you have, you know, racism tends to be painted in, in this in these black and white terms, but living in the US, it's so much more complicated than that. But just an attitude of bias, right? That we're fed, that we learn um, through different venues, the media and our family and our churches some in some cases, and all of these institutions that we're part of, I think what, you know, people need to go a lot deeper before we can really get to the root of how we can change this. And so what we're, what we're creating with this organization is a way for people to not only become more educated, you know, we want to give people tools um, so they can understand the issues. And I think that people should do that is very important. But beyond that, we want people to really see how personal they can make it and examine themselves and their own attitudes, not just about black lives, but about Asian lives and Latino lives and LGBT lives and South Asian lives and really understand where that comes from so that you have, that you're empowered to take more action. Because I feel like that's, that can be the difference between being a real ally, um, an ally or we're, we're, we're terming an accomplice, which is you get down in the fight with us. You understand that it, it matters to everyone that you also take action. And so um, we want to provide educational tools, reflective tools, and then a way for people to go on to action, even if it's something small, like how to have a conversation with your racist uncle um, and giving them tools. You know, if we're talking about Chinese people, for example, how do you have a conversation in Chinese? What are the, what are the words that you need so that you can talk to that person in a way they can understand? Um, but we also want to make sure that we're including diverse voices in this so that black people don't feel like they're exempt from this issue of bias, you know, like from what Alyssa was talking about before with her Taiwanese um, <laughs> niece and nephew, <laughs> who, you know, I'm sure a lot of those comments that she got were from black people. And we, some, you know, we have this idea about racism that it's, oh, you know, it's only if you have power over someone. And, you know, we have all kinds of different definitions about racism, but this bias affects all of us. And so we really need to think about ways to examine our own attitudes and then take action, take small actions around us, but be bold and take 
you know, make sure that you're voting. Make sure that you understand the initiatives on your ballot. Make sure that you're calling out racism in your workplace when you hear about it or when, you, when someone says something to you. Like, there are all kinds of actions we can take, but the important thing is to be in action and to, and to feel empowered to do that. I would just like to add that it's, it's definitely something easier said than done because I have friends, like very diverse group of friends. Most of my friends that I talk to on a, besides um, Liz and our friend Jalea are three white males, you know, and one of them is great. He's an ally. He's an accomplice. He has it all uh, down. He understands, you know, he understands as much as he can understand from his position as a white American, white male American. And the other friend actually contacted him and asked, I want to check on Alyssa, but I don't know what to say. And he, he told me, he was like, so, um, so also called and was like, he wants to check on you, but he didn't know what to say. And I was just like, stop being a jerk. Just call her like you normally would. And I was like, you know what? I get that though, because you don't know what to say and you don't want to be like, I get it. Cause you don't get it. And you also don't know where I'm at. So you don't know how I might respond to you and you don't want to say something offensive. So I just, um, for persons that are, that want to be in the space of being an ally, you know, it's okay to feel like you don't know. You know, and, and, it, and it is difficult to find a friend. And maybe that's how you start the conversation. Look, I want to be here for you. I want to support you. I want to check on you. I don't want to say anything wrong. So can you give me some grace? And I think it's important for um, people of color, whether your friend is Latina or Mexican or Black, to also to give your friends who want to be there for you the space to make mistakes, to say the wrong thing. Um, to steal your pain by going, oh man, I remember one time I also, because sometimes incidents happens and, and people compare it to something they've been through and you're just like, yeah, it's not the same. But give individuals the space to make mistakes because it is, this is a new space for everyone. It's a new space for black people because finally we're, so to speak, being seen. And it's a new spe space for those who weren't aware, who like knew bad things happened but didn't know the gravity of the situation. And that your friend who you see all the time, like my friends didn't know, yeah, I've been at jobs and uh, my employees have told me, oh, you know, you're great at being a director, but you'd be a great director of custodians. Like, and when I tell them about these instances, they're like, what? They're a public, because I don't talk about it. I'm not walking around angry. So they don't realize that I go through these types of, that I have endured these types of situations in the work, in professional workplaces. And that on a day-to-day -day basis, every day something happens. So um, I think it's just important that we all give grace on both sides uh, so, so that we can come to a space of understanding and really being collaborative in this, in this time where we can actually effect positive change that can impact everyone. Yeah, well, uh, thanks for um, sharing all that. I mean, yeah, it's an important time not only to have a conversations but uncomfortable conversations because it's really uncharted territory. Liz, I just, I'm curious because like, one thing I was encouraged about that I've seen happening that a lot of different other communities, non-black communities, saying here's how to have a conversation with your uncle, your father, your mother, your whoever. And I've seen things in different languages. Have you seen that? Yeah, there's this there's this open letter for black lives. I'm not sure if you saw that. Um, a friend of mine who's Taiwanese and she's and is a translator um, told me about it. And it's been translated into like 40 different languages. But 
the the idea is to have a, a converse because the conversation is going to be different from group to group, right? And this one specifically um, for Chinese, you know, all the the ai and the shu shu ye ye, like they they don't have the same context as we do. They don't have the same history as we do. So you need to meet people where they are. And so this letter for Black Lives comes um, from the standpoint of like, you know, you came here as an immigrant and you maybe came here with nothing and you struggled. But imagine having been in this country for 400 years and not having the same opportunities as an immigrant who came here and had struggled. And maybe you're brought here, right? Yeah. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So yeah. I think, yeah, it's important to have culturally relevant, you know, conversations. Definitely, you know, when when you see some generic article on Medium about how to talk to your black friend about racism, that's not going to work for everybody. So it's really important to understand, like, how to, to make those connection points and to make see how you can relate to the other person's experience, too, so that they get it. Right. Thank you so much, Alyssa, for bringing up the work that Liz is doing. I'm really excited to learn more about this. And I hope that I, I don't know if you're ready to talk about uh, what this group is or whatever, or if we can bring you back at some later time to talk about this. We're still in the building stages, but I would love to come back and talk when we're, when we're further along because we're really, really excited about it. It's, right. it's something that we think um, can really change society if, if it spreads. I mean, it's, it's like transformational um experiential learning meets activism so we're really we're really excited about building something great right well i feel like we've just actually started to scratch the surface of this conversation and we could probably go on for much longer but i want to respect your time and like i hope that what we've talked about here has given people who are listening some food for thought and yeah for them to think about what they can do with this and where they can go from here. Um, I want to thank you so much. I would invite you also if you have any closing things that you'd like to say before we end here. I would just say that if anybody is interested in having a conversation, um, feel free to contact me. I'm, I'm sure Alyssa is open to it too. Like we love having these kinds of conversations. And I think that especially if it's coming from, you know, people of Taiwanese descent, I think we, we get it, we get you, and I think that we can have these kinds of conversations in a, in a way that's respectful and educational and fun, and um, yeah, we're always looking to reconnect with Taiwan, so I think this could be a fun, interesting way to do it. So how can people get in touch with you since you offered that? Um, what's the best way? Are you on social media, or how can they find out or reach you? Yes, we'll provide our LinkedIn contacts and then um, some of the websites are in progress, but there's a drop page. You can just send an inquiry. Um, if, yeah, if they, I agree. If there are organizations that are having discussions and, you know, would like to get some other input insights, definitely feel free to reach out. Um, and the LinkedIn account can be reached through or um, our individual websites. Um, and I just also want to say thanks to Talk in Taiwan for creating this platform and and um, embracing this these current this type of a current event to say hey you know here's a space where you can come and discuss what's going on in the world and keeping things very relevant to what's happening in the world and bringing that to um, 
I'll, I'm sure there you have so many diverse listeners, you know, so not just the Thai, local Taiwanese audience, but just all audiences. So thank you. Great. Thank you. Yeah. So um, you guys can provide me that offline and I'll make sure that I put that in the show notes for this episode. So once again, I really want to thank you ladies so much. I really wish we had more time to talk about this, but uh, thank you so much for taking the time of your schedule and for being on the Talking Taiwan podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I've been speaking with Alyssa Russell and Elizabeth Williams about their experiences living in Taiwan and their perspectives on Black Lives Matter. To get in touch with and to learn more about Alyssa and Liz, visit TalkingTaiwan.com. We'll also have some links on what was mentioned in this episode. If you enjoyed this episode of Talking Taiwan, please take the time to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Thank you for listening to another episode of Talking Taiwan. I'm your host, Felicia Lin. Talking Taiwan is brought to you by Forumosa.com.